Well, we are continuing this morning by looking at the Gospel of John. Last week, we completed chapter 14. And so this morning, we are looking at John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up. Follow along as I read and then keep them open as we go through the passage. This morning's text, it says in your bulletin, is uh, John 15, 1 through 11. I won't get that far in this sermon. There's too much in the, in the earlier verses to talk about. But uh, I'll read that far anyway. Uh, so open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one of ours, you should find one in the chairs in front of you underneath. If you're going to use that Bible, you'll find the passage on page 901 and 902. John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I'll stop there. Well, verse 1 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Where are they when Jesus says these words? Well, there's some debate about that, because if you remember from last week, the end of that sermon at the very end of John chapter 14, remember they're sitting in this upper room. They have had the last supper there and Jesus has washed their feet and, and they've gone on and Jesus has gone on to teach them a lot of things, mainly about the Holy Spirit as the second helper who's going to be coming to help them. And then at the very end of chapter 14, you see that Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. Well, after he says that, then you get to chapter 15 and he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. He begins speaking again. The question is, where are they? Now, if you're like me, sometimes you've been visiting someone, you've been at someone's home. This has happened to uh, my family many, many times, probably in your house at some point, where I or Michelle has said, okay, guys, time to go. Let's grab everything together and let's get going. And about an hour later, we're still talking to the people that we're visiting and the kids still haven't gotten their stuff together. And so, uh, that could be the case. It could be the case that Jesus said, rise, let's go from here, and then, you know, that was a kind of preliminary let's go from here, and then the rest of this uh, upper room discourse, or the rest of the chapters 15 through 17, all happened there. Uh, that's an easy way to read that. However, the more I thought about it this week, I don't think that is the case. I think that they did get up and leave from there. 
Now, if you go to John chapter 18, this is after he prays his high priestly prayer. John John chapter 18, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So now we know that everything that happens after that happens in the garden of Gethsemane. So if you look at John chapter 18 where it says that, and you consider that he just said, rise, let's get going, I think, it's my opinion, that John 15 and 16 occur as they're making their way outside the city of Jerusalem. If you look at a map of Jerusalem, they're making their way outside the city and they get to outside the walls, and then they probably stay there, stop at that point, He prays the high priestly prayer, and then he says, let's cross now and go into this garden. And if I'm right about that, for one thing, it it would make sense as to what Jesus has done his whole ministry with these guys. It's been a ministry where he's walked along, and as he's walked, he's taught them. And if he's walking along, presumably they would have passed by the temple. And as they pass by the temple, Josephus tells us that Right out in front of the temple, there was a gigantic carved mural of a massive grapevine. And on that grapevine were huge clusters of grapes, larger than any man. It could be, and again I'm presuming, that as they walked past that mural, on their way out of the city, Jesus pointed to it, just as he had many, many times before pointed to an object and used that as his lesson. In any case, I believe in verse 15, Jesus begins kind of a new discourse. He begins focusing now on their relationship to Jesus and one another. He begins focusing on their relationship to the world, talking about how the world is going to hate them, but yet how the Holy Spirit is going to provide for their future ministry. And he begins that discourse by saying, I am the true vine, which if you pay attention to the I am statements of Jesus is now the seventh and climactic I am statement of this gospel. Jesus has already said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the way, the truth and the life. And now he says, I am the true vine. Why does Jesus say this? Well, I believe, especially with that modifier there, true, I believe what he's getting at here is he's comparing himself to the nation of Israel. He's saying that unlike Israel, it turned out to be a false vine, if you will, I am the true vine. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, Israel is described in many places as God's vineyard or as God's vine. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. 
I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. For the vineyard is the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And God looked for justice, but behold, he found bloodshed. For righteousness, and behold, he found an outcry. Psalm 80 might even be a better passage, if you will. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. For you brought a vine up out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted this vine. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. Israel expanded right there from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along may pluck its fruit? Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. See, have regard for this vine. And then in verse 15 in Psalm 80, there's another metaphor that pops up. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. So what you see in Psalm 80 is that Israel is not only called the vine of God, it's also called the son of God. We see in Hosea chapter 11 that very phrase, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Psalm 80 said, you brought a vine up out of Egypt. Both metaphors refer to Israel. So in referring to himself as the true vine, Jesus is saying he is the true Israel. Jesus is saying he is the son that Israel failed to be. We find this in Matthew chapter 2, an explicit linkage to that passage in Hosea. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search the child to destroy him. Joseph rose, took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew makes an explicit connection there with Hosea, calling Jesus the son of God. And interestingly, Psalm 80 ends in a very interesting way. Psalm 80 is talking about this vineyard, this vine that was brought up out of Egypt that was destroyed, that God essentially left to ruin. And then if you keep reading, it says, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Restore us, O Lord of God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And so Psalm 80 speaks of the failure of God's vine Israel, but it points to the success of the Son of Man, the man at God's right hand who will bring salvation. Jesus, notice, is the true vine. It is the Father who is the vine dresser. Now, when Jesus is giving these object lessons to his disciples, 
he gives them object lessons, again, of, of things that they can see around them. So he talks about, for instance, the sheep and the gate and the, and the fold and, and all of these things, and, and, and they can look and see what he's talking about. They're not so divorced from, from us that we can't know sort of what he means, but for them, they saw that every day. They saw shepherds every day. We don't, so sometimes we have to, you know, as a pastor, I have to read about some background and, and say, oh, well, when he talked about this, this is what he's talking about from some archaeologist that tells us what it was like. They, of course, saw vine tenders all over the place. So when he says, I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser, they have seen a million times people tending, vine dressers, tending to grapevines. Now, I knew nothing of that, anything about tending to any kind of plant or flower or vine or anything until my last year of seminary. And when I was in seminary, that, last, that final summer, I worked, just to make some extra money, with a gardener. It was a lady who had been trained at Longwood Gardens. She started her own gardening company, and we went uh, every day of the summer that summer, and uh, it was a brutal summer. It was hot. I got poison ivy a bunch of times. It was pretty miserable. But that whole summer, we went every day to really expensive homes out around the Philly area and to plant or tend to amazing gardens that Nina had planted. And she would have me do all of the grunt work. So I did all the digging, I did all of the rock removal, I did all of the stump removal and all of these things, and then she would, with her mastery, plant the plants that she had with her exactly where they needed to be. She was the one that would snip and tend to all of the plants and the flowers and all of these and give me all of the things that were to be thrown away and hauled away. It was interesting when I worked for her, just a side note, I started picking out certain flowers that I thought, yeah, I'd like to have that one day in front of our home, or I'd like to have that one day. And I told Michelle, hey, I'd, I'd like to get this, that, and the other thing when we got our house after seminary. And then one day, I, one, it took one trip to the, uh, to, the, to the place where they sell the flowers to realize how expensive that was. And I realized, I'm not going to have the kind of garden that, that Nina was planting. Forget that. Jesus describes the Father this way, like what Nina did. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the Father is doing two things as a vine dresser. The first thing he does is he cuts off and throws away and burns, if you look at verse 6, the branches that in essence are dead, the dead branches. The branches that are, that are alive, that are bearing fruit, he prunes these branches so that they may bear even more fruit. Now let's take the first action, this cutting off and the throwing away of the dead branches. What about these dead branches? Well, all you have to do is look back at the beginning of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even John. And what you see right at the beginning of them, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, John the Baptist, he's in our New Testaments, he, you don't hear about him until you get to Matthew, uh, but if you think about it, John the Baptist really functions as an old covenant prophet. 
He functions as kind of the last Old Testament prophet. There had been 400 years of silence before he came on the scene, but he was heralding the coming of the new covenant in Christ. So John the Baptist comes on the scene, and what does he say? Right from the beginning of his ministry, he says, look, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's shouting at the people. He he was not the most jolly of guys. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's speaking the same kind of language right from the beginning. You see, God had called Israel his vine, his son, his people. He had called the nation for them to be his people, for him to be their God. And he called them to bear fruit, to follow his laws, to follow his ways, to be, in one sense, a light to the rest of the world. Because of their sin and rebellion, all you have to do is read the Old Testament God essentially removed the lampstand from them. The the temple was destroyed. They were taken into exile. Well, by this time, by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, the Jews have returned to the land. Uh, They've been sent there. Uh, They have rebuilt the temple. In fact, now the temple rebuilt by Herod is larger and more magnificent in some ways than it had ever been. And there were these new religious sects that uh, sprouted up, like the Pharisees, which you've heard, the Sadducees, which you've heard, the Essenes. They were all around this area, uh, the Pharisees especially, kind of preaching this following God's law strictly and being holy as God is holy. And so a lot of the Jews thought that they were fine. God had brought them back, the temple was there, everything was going just fine. And here comes John the Baptist on the scene, shouting at everyone, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. When Jesus came on the scene, what did he begin preaching immediately? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, there were so many people in Israel at that time that were thinking to themselves, we're fine with God because we have Abraham as our father. And John the Baptist and Jesus came on the scene and said, no, you need to repent of your sins as well. Well, some did. We hear in the Gospels that many flocked to repent and be baptized. But we also hear that many didn't. What was the difference? Those who didn't essentially said, we don't need it. I don't need to repent and I don't need to be baptized because I have Abraham as my father. Paul, in Romans, he talks about this. He says, you see, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision, which was the mark of the covenant with God, merely outward and physical. But a Jew, you see, is one inwardly. Circumcision, true circumcision, is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In Romans chapter 9, Paul goes on to say, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, 
and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So he's saying Israel had all of these advantages, but then he goes on to say this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. See what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the nation of Israel was always from its founding a mixed community. Some of you who have been to the adult Sunday school class, MPC 101, you know, that will make sense to you. What does it mean that Israel was a mixed community? Well, it means that some who were in Israel were truly God's people, and there were a lot who weren't. What was the difference? The difference was this, because outwardly, there really wasn't any difference. They all looked the same. The difference was those who were truly God's people had been changed inwardly by a work of God, and thus they bore the fruit of the Spirit, true repentance and true faith in God. Those who weren't were only a Jew outwardly, not inwardly. They hadn't been changed. They had all the look of a Jew, but inwardly they had not been changed. And similarly, when we get to John 15, Jesus is saying that the same thing is true of the church. That his church, his church in the new covenant, this church here, every church has some in it who are truly saved and some who aren't. Some who are a Christian outwardly, essentially look like the rest of us, but are not one inwardly. No work of the Spirit has been done in their hearts, and thus they bear no fruit. Now some read this passage, perhaps you have, I have in the past. Some read this passage as though Jesus is teaching that Christians, true Christians who have been changed in their heart by the Spirit, who have been united to Christ by faith, can lose their salvation. That they can somehow not bear fruit at some point, and then they are cut off, thrown into the fire, and burned. But that can't possibly be what Jesus is saying. It can't be because all we need to do is look back at the, the rest of the gospel to see passages like this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Later on, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is given to me, he's greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So if Jesus is going to make those kind of statements and then later say, oh yeah, well, I, what I really mean is that if you kind of stumble a little bit and stop bearing fruit, yeah, you're, you're going to hell. 
That would make no sense whatsoever out of what he just said. What Jesus is saying here is that the New Testament church is a mixed community. There are some who are truly God's people and some who aren't. The difference is that those who are truly God's people have been changed inwardly by the work of the Spirit, and thus they bear the fruit of the Spirit. And those who are not are only a Christian outwardly, and they don't bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that's because the Christian's fruit, what Jesus is saying here, the vine that bears fruit is pruned, the Christian's fruit isn't generated by the Christian. The Christian's fruit is solely generated by the Holy Spirit, who is our down payment and guarantee of heaven. Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What did Je uh, Jesus say to Nicodemus? He said, look, unless you're born again by a work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. You must be changed by the Holy Spirit. You see, before we get too confused about what he's saying here, we see this kind of outward Christianity, this kind of non-spirit-led discipleship earlier in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 2, it said, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he knew what was in the heart of every man. See, Jesus knew who was the, the person that was professing to believe in him but not truly believing in him. In John chapter 6, it's even more clear. John chapter 6, he's talking to his disciples, those who have been following them around, those who claim to be his followers. And Jesus looks at them and he says, there are some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And then this interesting statement, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, sometimes we, we get confused. We equate the term disciple with the term true believer, or the term disciple with true Christian. You see, every true believer is a disciple, but not every disciple ends up being a true believer. When we baptize our children here, we baptize them to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We train them up to follow him. We pray with them. We teach them. We bring them to worship. And yet, we all know that save for God's grace, none of our children, despite our best efforts, would come to follow him truly and be his disciple in the heart. We do our part, but it takes the work of the Spirit to truly unite our children to faith. And some of our children end up being his disciples for 18 years of their life and then walking away. The visible church is full of what the Bible calls both wheat and tares. 
John, in 1 John, he's writing to a church. He says, children, it is the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. You see, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us. So those are the dead branches. What about the good branches? Well, the good branches are the ones and only the ones who bear the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus tells a parable about the sower. And what he says is that the farmer went out and he sowed seeds. And some of the seed fell on rocky soil and the seed was immediately taken away and and nothing happened. Some of the seed actually fell on some soil, uh, some dirt, and, and you saw something happen. Something sprung up. There was some kind of reaction to this word going out. But eventually, that plant got choked out or it dried up. Jesus says this, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world... The deceitfulness and the riches of the world choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. See, it it looked outwardly like these were going to be plants that would bear fruit, but they didn't. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bears fruit. And yields in one case a hundredfold, another a sixty, and another thirty. The only plants that bear good fruit are those that are sown in good soil. The rest are end up being dead in the end. So what does the father do with the good branches? Does he leave them alone? Do the Plants that spring up that start bearing fruit, are they just allowed to grow however they want and just bear whatever fruit they're going to bear and and that's it? No. Notice that the father doesn't chop them and and throw them out. Obviously not. They bear fruit. But notice that he prunes them in order that they might bear even more fruit. You know, when I worked for that gardener, Nina, she didn't just go in and, and plant plants wherever, plant flowers wherever, and then we walked away and never went back to that garden for the entire summer? No, we, we revisited homes over and over and over again, and, and she would go in and, and tend to the, the beautiful plants and, and trim things off and, and pluck this and pluck that. And, and, and what she went is she worked most of all on the plants that were doing well, the plants that had no fruit, were just immediately chopped down and given to me to be taken off in the wheelbarrow. But the ones that were beautiful already were the ones that she spent the most time on. She spent the most time on those that that she may take what was already beautiful and make them even more beautiful. Now, 
Plants don't have minds, as far as I know, and plants can't talk. But I would imagine if I were a flower, or if I were a plant, I would probably want to be left alone. I'm not sure that I would enjoy being pruned. Because when you look at what pruning is, it looks pretty painful. When a plant is pruned, cuts are made, leaves are snipped, the plant is redirected, or sometimes uprooted from one place and planted over here so that it gets even more sun, and maybe it liked where it was before. Because see, if, if the plant is not pruned, if it's not tended to, then it won't be as beautiful as it could be. And what Jesus tells us is that the Father is after fruit. That is his goal. I think I said last, last week, and I've said many times, it, it's not the goal of God that, that we be happy, but that we be holy. And so God the Father will use different things in our lives, oftentimes painful things, to prune those who are bearing good fruit that we might bear even more. The book of Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there who his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Alistair Begg puts it this way, the furnace of judgment and hell is one we will never face. But when it comes to the fiery trials of the Christian life, we are delivered through the furnace, not from it. You see, Christian, I know right now that if you are a true believer, that if you have the Holy Spirit and that you are bearing fruit right now in some way, God the Father is pruning you. I don't know how. I don't know all the ways he's doing it. I know a lot of them by talking to you. But I know that he's not content with the fruit that you're already bearing. He is going to prune you from now until the day he calls you home that you might bear even more fruit and that the day that you leave this earth, you will look more like Christ than the day that he called you to him. I know and have seen even in my own life over the last, well, since late August, when I got a concussion, I talked about it a few sermons ago, I have seen in my own life how God has used this thing that I would rather not have to bring about a lot of fruit in my own life. It's good when you can see it. A lot of times we can't. A lot of times we just go through hardship and we don't know what's happening. We don't immediately see the fruit. I am seeing the fruit of what God has brought, but I, I don't like it. It's the Father's job then to prune the branch. What is the branch's job? If it's the Father's job to prune you, Christian, what is, it, what is your job? Well, we see it here. It is your job to stay attached to the vine. We see it all over the place. Verses four through six. Look, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you 
Unless you abide in me, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. If the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. It's the Father's job to prune you, Christian, and it is your job to abide in the vine. And you see, the disciples had a good test case in front of them of someone who didn't abide in the vine, and that was Judas. They just saw one of their own, one who in every way outwardly looked just like they did. He, he walked three years with Jesus just like they did. He listened to all the things that Jesus said just like they did. He participated in the things that they participated in. And when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray, uh, one of you is going to betray me, isn't it interesting that they didn't all turn and stare at Judas? And say, well, we know who that is, obviously. He's been screwing up from day one. No, as a matter of fact, they don't know who it is. They all look around, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Judas, from all outward circumstances, looked just like they did, only he did not abide in the vine. He ran away and betrayed his Lord and didn't come back with repentance. This word, abide, is all over the place in this passage. And we can spiritualize it. We can, what does it mean to abide? Does that mean kind of have a feeling or, you know, sort of get, have a spiritual high? Or what does abide in Jesus mean? Well, the word simply means remain. It's the Greek word meno. It means remain or stay. And we see it used all throughout uh, John 7, 9. After saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee. That's the same word, abide, remain. And it makes complete sense. Because after all, what can a branch do, even if it's bearing fruit, if it becomes detached from the vine and falls on the ground? Jesus said, apart from me, if you're, if you're severed from me, you can do nothing. If a branch it can have the most beautiful fruit, and the most abundant flowers on it, but if it gets cut from the vine and falls on the ground, it dies. It can do nothing. It's not going to get up and reattach itself to the vine. And we won't bear fruit if we don't remain in him. You see, here's the point. Christianity is a lifelong journey with Jesus, side by side, clinging to him, in good times and in bad, through thick and thin. It is a life of constant repentance, of stumbling and falling, but always returning because he alone, we know, has the words of eternal life. Is that you this morning? Are you abiding in the vine? You know, I can't tell you how many people I've seen in the past 10 years, people that I grew up with in church, people that I went to youth group with, people that sometimes knew the Bible better than I did when we were kids, people who seemed completely by all appearances to love the Lord and follow him, who have in the last 10 years publicly and brazenly walked away from the Lord and posted on Facebook 
how proud they are to not be Christians anymore, how horrible they think the church is, and all the terrible things they think the Bible teaches, and how proud they are that now they're in the world and of the world. How much they love the world's morality, and how much they're going to love embracing it. Why? Why generally do they do that? The same reason why Jesus' disciples walked away from him in John 6. It's because they run into something in God's word that they don't like. And when what they want and what God wants comes into conflict, they choose themselves over God. Is that you this morning, friend? Are you teetering on severing yourself from the vine because of something that you don't like? about Christianity. I would caution you against that. Jesus is cautioning you against that. You see, remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, simply means remaining with him your whole life. It doesn't mean walking down an aisle or saying a sinner's prayer and then never darkening the door of a church again. It doesn't mean coming once in a while to church and then having nothing to do with him the rest of your life. See, remaining in something is not a difficult concept to understand if we understand other relationships. How do you remain in a marriage? Do you remain in a marriage by taking vows that day and then never speaking to each other again? Do you remain in a friendship by Uh, meeting someone as a four-year-old on a playground and saying, hey, you're my best friend, and then never seeing them again for the rest of your life? How do you remain in a job? Passing the interview and being given your schedule and being shown your office and your desk and then never showing up for work again? How do you remain in something? You remain in a marriage by sticking it out. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in good times and in bad, until death do you part. That's how you remain in a marriage. How do you remain in a friendship? You remain in a friendship by sticking it out, by making time for each other, by carving out time in your schedule, by forgiving one another, by having conversations your whole life. You remain in a job by showing up on time, by not cheating the company, by doing what your boss asks you even when it's not your favorite thing to do. You see, you you don't finish a book by reading the first chapter and putting it down. I've done that many times before in my life. See, the mark of a successful anything is not how you start, but how you finish. And saving faith, faith that is created by the Holy Spirit, perseveres. Saving faith abides. Not perfectly, but lastingly, until the end. Paul says, he's writing to Timothy at the end of his life. He says, you see, Timothy, my time, the time of my departure has come. I'm about to be killed, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. 
Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says to us, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, run the race that is set before you. Abide in Christ. You see, the good news is you aren't abiding in your own strength. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You see, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul tells us in Philippians, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, Christian, the good news is you didn't attach yourself to the vine. God did. It wasn't your work. Notice Jesus doesn't say, make sure you attach yourself to me. He says, you have been attached to me by grace. Abide in the vine. Verse 3, I'm going to close with this. Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He looks at the 11 that are with him, and he says, you see, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. But earlier that evening, when Judas was still there, he said, you are clean, but not every one of you. And John said, for Jesus knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. What did Jesus mean when he said, you're clean? He meant that they had been cleaned and had been justified by the work that he was about to do. He said, you're clean. Judas was never cleaned. He's departed. The rest of you have already been justified by what I'm about to do. All you need to do is stay with me. Christian, if you find these words hard this morning, I want you to be encouraged by what happened right after he said these words. Where were they headed? They were headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. What were these 11 men about to do? He was about to ask them to pray with him, and they all fell asleep. When he was arrested, they all scattered in fear. Their leader denied three times that he even knew him before the rooster crowed. Friends, that was abiding for weak fallen sinners. You see, sometimes abiding looks like a life of failure. Sometimes abiding looks like a life of abandonment. It looks like a life of disappointment, but you know what? In the end, in the end, by God's grace, 
all 11 of those men made it to the end. In fact, they all gave their life for the Lord. Jesus pointed to the fact that they would when he presented the Lord's Supper to them 